Today, our guest is Cassie Lin. Cassie is a design manager, mentor, and transformational coach. She empowers designers to challenge strategic decisions, express their design vision, and think independently. She's also the host of Being Awareness podcast, a bi-weekly exploration of mindfulness, meditation, and self-awareness. In this episode, we are talking about designers' mental health, how to deal with imposter syndrome, how to survive and manage high workloads, and what is healthy approach to growth. I am Nikla Kev. I'm Ningfei Oh, and this is Design Unframed, the podcast that believes that every pixel has a story. Cassie, how do you keep your mental health in a good shape? as a designer, as a, as a person? Um, personally, it took me quite a long time to figure a lot of things out, <laughs> I must say. Like, I was walking a pretty standard path for a long time. I took pride in, um, you know, the increasingly better salary and titles that I was able to get. Um, and I was thinking that, you know what, I, I'm definitely succeeding here. I'm doing everything right until... I started to feel dissatisfaction. It's the same type of dissatisfaction that I've always felt that was usually just being covered up by the distractions that I constantly was seeking in my life. So this prompted um, kind of a soul searching of deep diving into myself to understand what is really happening there. Um, and I come back again and again to the awareness piece is because I think this awareness piece, it would help it would help people to understand what is truly happening so that one can make decisions that is actually in alignment with one's values and what one finds purposeful. And this purpose piece also becomes super important. You know, if I didn't feel like every day is an opportunity to learn and do something purposeful with my life, then I would not want to get out of bed. So it's this like, what is your purpose? You know, what, what was my purpose? And that purpose is actually always changing. My purpose as a manager was something very specific. But my purpose as um, that I am, I find in my life now that I am not a design manager for the time being is something else totally again. And that is actually changeable. I don't, I don't know if there's anything that is like, okay, my purpose is X and that would be it for the rest of my life. You know, I'm not sure how realistic that is for for most people. Yeah. What is your purpose now? My purpose is actually exploration and learning and creating from what I'm learning. So it's very explorative at the moment because mm. this year um, I've been writing a book. I've been doing my podcast. I've been um, taking a number of courses on different things. And also I'm helping my dad with his business. Mm. So applying some of these things that I'm learning to see, hey, how can I experiment with some of these things in a practical way? Um, and this is where the applying mm. to, to his business part comes in. And at the same time, that is helping me observe my relationship with him because that has always been a kind of a tricky, tricky relationship in my life is my relationship with my father. So all of this stuff is like, okay, why, why did I do all this mindfulness stuff for myself? Sure, to make my own life a little bit better. Sure, to make myself a little uh, more aware. Great. But when the rubber meets the road is when those challenging relationships are still there. How do I want to apply what I'm learning to be with that relationship? And how do I then observe that change over time? 
And this is a really interesting experiment. Um, so yeah, so the purpose part is is bigger than just paid work. Uh, so, let, so let's start with the imposter syndrome. I face it, uh, I know maybe, maybe you faced it as well. So maybe you have some tips, advice on that, how to work with imposter syndrome or how to help people with imposter syndrome. So before we even get into that, Uh, there are two things about imposter syndrome that um, I really like to share with other people. Let's remember first what actually is imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is a psychological phenomenon where individuals doubt their abilities and fear being exposed as fraud despite evidence of their competence. It was first identified by psychologists Pauline Clance and Susan Imes in 1978. They observed that high-achieving individuals were often felt like imposters and attributed their success to luck rather than their own capabilities. Since then, imposter syndrome has been widely studied and recognized across various professions and industries. According to a survey conducted by Blind in 2018, as many as 58% of tech workers, including designers, feel like imposters from time to time. Uh, one of them is, it's very common, because I remember this one statistic way back when, when, um, you know, I think Stanford somewhere, a really famous um, postgraduate school in the U.S. that surveyed their first year students and said, like, all of those who thinks you're the one mistake that admission has made, raise your hand. Half the room raised their hand. So that just goes to show that this is a very common occurrence. Um, and then the second thing is um, Dunning-Kruger effect. All right, let's take a moment to find out what this Dunning-Kruger effect is. It is when people who are new or are not very good at something think that they paradoxically are much better than what they actually are. It's a cognitive bias where lower skilled individuals tend to overestimate their abilities because they lack the experience to recognize their own incompetence. On the flip side, those who are actually competent might underestimate their abilities because they assume what they find easy is in fact easy for everyone else and recognize their own shortcomings or they see the complexity of their field. This effect is named after psychologists David Dunning and Justin Kruger who first described it in a 1999 research paper. It's a poignant reminder that self-awareness is crucial and sometimes those who know the least may appear like they know the most. So it's this really interesting psychological uh, phenomenon that people who are actually really competent sometimes have a have a lesser view of themselves internally. Yeah, I remember there's a this famous graph with the Dunning-Kruger effect, um, and it's similar to how people understand um, things with knowledge. It's it's a cognitive bias, if I'm not wrong, and uh, it goes like the more that you understand something, the more you realize you don't understand it. So you have to cross that valley of uh, you know, of ignorance or valley of despair or something, and then. And then once you're past that, then you realize, okay, you know, there is more to it and you you gain true knowledge or maybe or maybe you, you become more competent or more confident uh, in yourself. So so I do think it's, it's relevant to imposter syndrome. And so maybe would you say that, you know, a good bulk of people who are, you know, experiencing imposter syndrome are perhaps just at the verge or at the cusp of, you know, reaching up to that, uh, that slope, that upward slope in the Dunning-Kruger effect that they are, they're actually becoming more um, aware of themselves and themselves and the knowledge that they're about to, to to obtain and to possess. 
possibly. And Ning, when I'm listening to you talk about that, I'm also what's coming up to me it, or coming to mind is actually like the the healthy way of looking at what I don't know versus an mm. in, unhealthy way of looking at what I don't know. Because a healthy way of looking at what I don't know is actually humility. You know, it's like being humble and being open and curious about, you know, the world is full of um, interesting things and things that I do not know. How can I get to know them if I need to get to know them? Versus imposter syndrome, which has a very negative type of emotional association with it internally, mostly. And that usually from my experience working with designers whom I observed, having some kind of imposter syndrome is a sense of of lack in their confidence internally what is the one tip that you would give to somebody a designer for instance who is facing imposter syndrome it's it's actually very individual to the person because i have actually a story about um about this mm -hmm. if i'm okay let's so let's hear it yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to, of course, use any names. And this is just, you know, an anecdote. So I worked with a brilliant designer, like brilliant, brilliant, so good at everything, visual design, interaction, you know, like even coats. This is a unicorn that the one of the best I've ever worked with. And interestingly, they had one of the worst case of imposter syndrome I've seen. And we actually worked together for, I think, over a year and a half to really deep dive into what is it that's really beneath your belief that in you're an imposter. And we, we came to many, um, you know, interesting belief systems that they have had about themselves. Um, one of them, I think, is like how they relate to other people in their minds um, when it comes to, I guess, capability. And that is actually a fundamental belief of like, oh, if I were to show that I'm competent, then I'm being arrogant. So it's this really interesting, you know, kind of like bundle, bundling of beliefs deep down inside that if I'm, I'm, I'm showing that I'm competent and I start to talk about my competence, then I am not living according to my value, which is being humble. Mm. So it's mm. really interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a deep conflict, you know, within the person themselves. Yeah. Mm. It's only one case and we have, we can have like hundred cases, different cases on imposter syndrome. It's a huge problem, but maybe we can have some, you know, general advice on what to do. I don't know what I can come up with is that like at the point when you realize that you have imposter syndrome, you have to do some actions to at least read about it, to watch some YouTube videos, to to realize that you are not the only one, and maybe to go to a psychotherapist or like psychologist to to work to work on this issue because it, it's not only affecting your job; it's affecting the whole life. Definitely, definitely. Um, actually, one of the I think, you know, th this does take some discipline, but one of the most effective ways that I've seen that helps people with this is actually first bringing awareness to what's going on. So I usually recommend journaling, um, at least just writing down every time that you observe that imposter syndrome has happened. What were the circumstances 
that this happened in and what feelings and thoughts arose for me during these interactions and then what was the outcome. So this usually creates a more of an awareness for the individual over time to just see, hey, look, this is the kind of situation that this kind of feeling and behavior shows up for me. And over time, they can start to see a pattern perhaps within themselves. And this creating awareness, I think, is probably one of the first steps to working with imposter syndrome, especially like if you want to work with it on a deeper level. And I always also recommend for people, if, especially if they think this is a more deeply ish, rooted issue, to do seek out professional support with a, a therapist. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Definitely. Thanks for that, Cassie. I think that's really helpful for me. Uh, when I do face imposter syndrome, uh, what I do sometimes is I, I imagine that everybody else is facing it because, uh, you know, odds are that it's true. And if they're not facing it now, they faced it in the past sometime. And if everyone faces it together, if everyone's an imposter, then 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 no one's an imposter, right? So that's that's how I try to look at it. Um, and everyone has been there. Um, nobody starts being an experienced or a seasoned designer. Everyone starts from somewhere. So, you know. Uh, takes baby steps if you need to eventually you will get there so that's how I approach it and um and if I feel like I can't do it sometimes uh I've come across you know Shia LaBeouf's video sometimes I watch it for fun he says like just do it just do it and then I <laughs> sometimes <laughs> yeah. it comes to me as like, oh yeah actually yeah let's just do it you know stop thinking so much and just go and just do the thing that you need to do and then before you know it, it's done and then you're not worrying about it What would you say to a design manager or somebody who has the means to create a design culture or maybe an entire organization if they're in um, HR or organizational design to create a setting or a culture where it is it is healthy and, and designers can thrive? What is that? What does that look like in terms of the environment? Uh, I think it could circle back to recognizing that there isn't one way of solving problems nor one way of looking at the world. Because it just brings back this concept of a very left brain heavy focused way of looking at worlds and problem solving. That way of looking at our reality and problem solving can only help us create certain kinds of solutions. It's incomplete. It's actually complete when you bring out a different way of looking at problem solving, which is to invite more of the uncertain ways more holistic ways of looking at the world and problem solving is actually to, to put design as a function really on equal footings with everyone else. And for me, I think it's not just that's not just about org structure. How do we structure org? But the way we think about companies and realities that we all reside in. And um, and that I know can be challenging because this is fundamental like worldviews of peoples that we're talking about here. So um, if that cannot be, and nothing, no change can be achieved overnight. So perhaps it's about, you know, I hope if any um, leaders in organizations hearing this, perhaps just taking a, t taking a moment to look at, you know, like how, what are some of the beliefs that our organizations are run on right now and how might that be complemented by, some, by something a little bit different? And also, I really feel like design 
in a lot of situations is put into a position of like, prove yourself worthy, you know? You're unworthy until you prove yourself worthy. Even though by lip service, mm. everyone can say design is equal. Absolutely. Design is equal to engineering yeah. to product. But is that really true? If we were to really, really be truthful and honest with ourselves as leaders of a company, can you really say that is that is true? That's what we really, really think. And is that being reflected in the actions that the organization is taking? And I think that if an organization can truly bring design in their beliefs into an equal position with every other function, then you probably will come up with better products. So as designers, you know, you mentioned that yes, you know, a lot of designers, especially in smaller startups that I find have taken on more roles than just being a pure product or UX designer. They've taken on some roles of being a PM, maybe they design or write the user stories, for instance, or they actually have to uh, take on a graphic design role, maybe because there's there's nobody doing that, that role, filling that role, or even in, I don't know, in marketing or even in a bit of front end. So um, what are your thoughts on, on designers um, dealing with that pressure of taking on more roles? This is really case dependent again, um, because I'm just reflecting on my situation, you know, in a situation where we have, I guess, um, I want to say six to seven teams, um, product teams in general, and then uh, probably 11 designers in total, Wait, much more teams than that. So 11 teams or more, but anyways, 11 designers. Um, in this kind of situation, definitely they are design managers. So they're design managers, um, I guess one design manager per five designers, something like that. In this kind of situation, what is the role of design manager to support the designer in a situation like that? And reflecting on my, what I've done personally, if I were to do it again, I would do it differently. Because before I had this attitude of, Let's do it lean. Let's make it happen. You know, it's like, okay, tell me your situation. Let's see what we can do. Let's see how we can make this into a learning experiment. Uh, what can we do here to, to make this happen? And at the same time, if you are taking on some of these roles of like creating more cohesion with it, within the team, we're sharing information across different functions. That's awesome. Let's see how we can help you strengthen your own skill sets in these areas. So I took that approach. In some cases, fine, that could work. That could even help folks be a little stronger in their organizational and relationship building skills. However, is that really right for them? Is that really right for the future of this specific team or, or this specific, um, you know, the structure of the, of the a group or company? And I realized in hindsight only that what has happened was this created um, a behavior pattern of other um, other functions expecting this from design continuously, that it is okay to behave this way, that it is okay to let design just to step in and fulfill the roles of a program manager, for example. Um, let them do the relationship building thing and let design collect all of these research findings and let design lead all of these things. Sure, the intention was probably not a bad intention. However, the outcome was not awesome. Right. So, so it sounds like you've got to say no sometimes. Yes. So what is what is what is the 
boundary or what is, you know, what is a healthy boundary that we need to set? as individuals, designer individuals, and also as an organization. And I think a lot of these things need to be discussed and need to be clearly understood between leadership, in this case, design leadership, product leadership, engineering leadership, to come together to understand what exactly are the healthy boundaries. But healthy boundaries does not mean all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is your work, it's not mine. <laughs> it's mm. just being very clear about, okay, these are my responsibilities. How can I support you in that? And here are your responsibility and how can you support me on this? So that conversation actually really needs to happen, I think, on the leadership level. And on the individual level, I think it's very important for designers to find a way of voicing these concerns to their managers if they, they can. And at the same time, finding a way of setting their own boundaries of thinking, hey, you know what, these are my focus areas and this is my priority and this is what we need to do in order for me to do my job well. You know, how can we make the rest happen? Yeah, I think it is somehow connected to imposter syndrome as well because when you don't feel confident and don't feel competent and people are keep giving you more responsibilities, uh, you cannot say no. Because when you feel, okay, I'm not doing enough or I'm not trying hard enough, I need to get these more responsibilities or I need to get this responsibility as well. And then it results in, in burnout. This is what happens to me, like happened to me multiple times. I'm like just taking a lot of responsibilities and then cannot handle, at some point cannot handle all these responsibilities because I have to, um, I have to perform. And I don't know where to stop. And I think it, I'm not the only one who is like behaving like that, especially taking into account all these recent terrible news about tech layoffs. Some people have to do the job of the people who left. What can one designer do about it? Again, <laughs> it's, it's very individual. Um, however, um, one of them I th think perhaps could be... Um, prioritization. So really understanding what is top priority for us in order to get to the next thing. Because if everything's important, then nothing is important. And if, you know, a designer is faced with 20 million tasks at the same time every day, I think their mind is and energy is being stretched in all kinds of different places. There's no way for them to be able to actually deliver good work. And once you are feeling exhausted and overstretched, you know, I would not want to go back to work again, you know, the next day. So th this is sounds like a very negative cycle cycle that could be perpetuated. So to break the cycle, um, perhaps one is to recognize that this is something I cannot continue. This is the first thing internally making a decision that I cannot continue doing this. And if I wanted to do this, what is it that I need to do to make whatever it is that I'm, I have to, I'm working on bite size and in, in, this, in a chunk that I can actually tackle. So this does require some of this kind of like sorting, understanding what is all the responsibilities that I think I am responsible for, and then prioritizing them, either within oneself or with other people in the company that I'm working with, for example. That could be my manager, it could be my, my product partners, it could be my engineers, getting everyone together to understand the priorities that I need to deliver 
And finally, another thing that I think could be really interesting to explore, um, not finally, another thing that uh, folks can perhaps explore is to talk with the partners that they work with and understand who else could potentially take on some of these tasks. Because I had a designer before who was one designer working with a team that was running super, super quickly. And they kind of expected them to deliver really fast all the time. But the thing is, he was not going to do be able to do all the research and then all the ideation and then all the different prototypes. It's just not possible. So how could we democratize the research process, for example? Then we came up, he came up with this kind of process of, okay, how do we get PMs on board to conduct some of these research activities? And then how do we help them share this out with the team so that he does not have to do everything on his own? Yeah. That he can start to utilize other folks on the team as well. Yeah. And also, I, I agree with you 100%. And maybe one more thing I wanted to mention last is that you can tell your manager that you're overworking. It's okay. Someone, someone can just be afraid of saying it or telling it to the manager because people think that, okay, I will look like I'm slacking off. It actually doesn't work like that. You can tell your manager, I'm overworking, I have too much work, and your manager can help you. Cassie, one of the most important topics for a lot of designers is growth. For some, growth means growing professionally, learn new skills and get more experience. For others, growth means going up a career ladder and becoming a manager. In your opinion, what approach should designers use when it comes to pursuing growth? Again, this comes back to, I, th I think it comes back to um, everybody's belief about what growing actually means. Because oftentimes, um, Nick, like what you mentioned, um, we have this preconceived notion that growth means progression up a ladder. <laughs> um, and you know what? For a long time, that was probably true. And for the standard path, that could be true as well. However, I think these days we're seeing more flexibility in understanding the definition of growth. Like growth for each person, if, you know, one were to truly ask themselves, what growth, what does growth really mean to me? Everyone's going to have a different answer. But when you put it against all the other things that perhaps I, you know, me as an individual feel like I have to, I have to do in order to achieve success, especially if it's templated version of looking at what success means and what growth means, then there could be a lot of dissonance between what I really feel I need to do in order to grow myself versus what I think that the world expects of me. So this is something that I would encourage folks to really try to understand for themselves. It's like, what does growth really mean to me? Like, what makes me thrive? Hmm. You know? In fact, um, I can even add to that. Uh, you know, we talked about issues that are systemic and many times influenced by businesses and the nature of the company. And growth is, in fact, while well, some people say that it's a myth, you know, there's no real need for things for concepts or for the world even or for individuals to to constantly chase after growth in a perhaps aggressive and unhealthy way you know um uh, from the seed to, to series a b c and so on like it, it's a very much a, a startup um you know a state of mind and 
perhaps it's it's okay uh, and for some people to continue being an IC and an individual contributor and and continue growing, um, not to chase the next promotion or not not to chase the next um, level um, at work, but to just grow an experience in something that you know perhaps uh, one is accustomed to or, or one really likes, right? And it's it's about honing that craft, and perhaps that's enough, you know. So so that that the myth of growth um, is is what I've heard. Uh, has been bounced around a few times and and it, it's a really good perspective to sometimes reflect upon. Definitely. Because, you know, what is healthy growth and what does growth mean? Because growth oftentimes to folks could mean I'm constantly expanding. I'm earning more money. I have a higher title. Therefore, I'm growing. How true mm. is that? You know, w- what is really in that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You, you're right. You're right. Because, uh, Growing, it, it doesn't mean even that you grow on work. Exactly. You can grow outside the work. You can become a better at, I don't know, guitar hero. Yeah. Okay. Like I'm, I'm a super guitar hero player or, or something like reading books. Like, uh, you can start reading two, three, four books a month and you are growing as a, as a person. I remember, uh, I think Tobias Van Schneider told that designers have to read not about design but about something else uh you have to have a lot of information about outside design Mm. read about i don't know animals read about nature read about other countries other cultures and these will help you to become a better designer this is also part of the growth definitely absolutely so growth is something different all the time definitely and you know like a personal anecdote I grew more after I, I quit my job and let go of my title. Right, right. So <laughs> learn from it, people. Yeah, just leave your job. <laughs> no, no, no. That's not what I'm recommending. <laughs> May not be right for everyone. <laughs> Do you think it's healthy or unhealthy to feel personally attached to your designs? You know, some people, they feel like this is a creative work that they've done. Um, or they feel like it's something that they're really proud of, or perhaps they've invested a lot of time and effort into it, and they're unwilling to to let go, or maybe it's, uh, you know, it's it's thrown out um, at the first meeting with the PM, and maybe that makes them feel terrible as a designer because you've put so much of your heart into it. You know, what do you think about this? How do you how do designers how should designers um, deal or face or approach? Uh, being attached to their designs? So a few things are coming to mind. One of them is um, if one is too attached, then it's also very easy to hold on to something and narrowing one's perspective. So as a designer, I'm not sure how good and or healthy that could be. Because sometimes the, fir- the, the, the idea that we think is great, the greatest, that we put so much into that we feel attached to may not necessarily be the best. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we want to help ourselves to broaden our perspective to really see what could be some great solutions for this specific situation? And that uh, my job here is to facilitate that to happen. So, so this is kind of like addressing the too attached side of things. But you can also swing too far to the other side, which is too unattached. It's like, I don't care, whatever, you know, whatever you tell me, whatever you say, I'm going to do. I'm not attached. 
this is not going to affect me. It's not great either because you also are not put into a position where you can be um, very logical, logical and cool headed in your approach to, to create the right solution for this circumstance. So it's somewhere in the middle, you know, it's like, how do I come at this with the openness and curiosity to actually solve the problem or create the, the solution that it's actually good for this, for whatever it is that we're trying to solve now. Um, so, so this is kind of like looking at these two very extreme ends of attachment. It's not about too unattached or too attached. It's about like, what is a healthy middle that I can still do my function well and, and actually come up with good solutions. This is uh, one thing. And second, I think, you know, extreme attachment um, it reminds me of, of growth mindset, of what is the true growth mindset. And actually a true growth mindset is a separation of my own self-worth from what I'm doing out there, creating a healthy distance between the two things that I'm not judging my worth as a person by what I put out. So if that distance can be created, then actually there's more space for me as an individual to improve my craft, to actually become better at what I'm doing. If my worth and my fundamental value is not really attached to the outcome of something that I'm creating out there, because that outcome is not always within our control. Yeah, that resonates a lot because recently I had a session with a designer and she basically told me that she feels super unsafe and uncomfortable when someone is telling her that her design, her ideas are not very good and suggesting another ideas. And when she understands that the suggested idea is better than hers, she thinks that she's a terrible designer. And uh, this is the thing that is hard to overcome, to switch to this mindset that you shouldn't come up with all the ideas. Sometimes you should take the idea that is suggested to, from your teammates and just apply it. And this will mean that you are a professional designer, right? You're collaborating with people and taking their ideas and implementing them. And you can say, okay, my idea is bad. What do you think about it? What would you say? I would encourage uh, the designer to actually um, look at what exactly was the idea and, and really objectively describe the idea itself and detach that from saying my idea. Yeah, so it's like, okay, let me describe what was the actual solution that was proposed. It was X, Y, Z. Okay, and this, um, and the alternative proposed solution is X, Y, Z. So what we're doing here is objectively understanding what is really being proposed and detaching that from, this is my idea. This is my work as a designer. So this helps to help people um, actually create that distance a little bit and objectively evaluate what is being put on the table. And when you can see what is objectively being put on the table, perhaps there's more room to, to assess, okay, this is an apple, this is an orange. And which one of these seems to be more appropriate for this fruit salad I'm making? You know, it's like, it, it helps people create that distance and perhaps could also help them um, gradually build up more confidence and gradually become more comfortable 
with this uh, the the true growth mindset. I think I think that's super important for designers to realize. Um, as somebody who I think is fairly proud of my work um, as a content designer, I think a lot of times you know I I profess to own the copy that I write. And so there is a sense of pride because I put in time and effort into the things that I write. And, and so it ties in with the feedback that I get as well, right? So I think the the criticisms that some product designers may face, sometimes they don't, they're not delivered in a good way. And therefore um, the designers feel rejected and sometimes defeated, right? And then you swing the other way where you're completely unattached to your design. And then you just listen to whatever the PM says. The PM says, Okay, I want this in the flow. You design this in the flow. Um, they want that in their component. You put that in the component. So, so then that also becomes unhealthy because you are completely defeated and that you are squashed by external forces and that you don't feel like you have the agency to compel yourself to come up with something that's that's beautiful and something that that you own. So I think this ties in very well with feedback, which is something that we want to talk about as well. How do you receive feedback, especially when designers, part of designers' work? is creative sometimes you know there is uh, there is a sense of ownership in the design especially when they put hours into it how do we keep a healthy distance and at the same time perhaps in knowing and understanding what is good feedback that we want to receive also learn how to give that feedback so what are your views on on this maybe healthy feedback loop that designers should uh, should have yeah um, again, I think this goes back to probably the awareness portion, you know, it's like for designers to, to perhaps over time understand, you know, when, when I'm receiving a seemingly negative feedback, especially worded in an unconstructive way, like what is, what is happening for me? So I think understanding what is going on internally and how am I reacting to this? Because sometimes when most of the times um, when we don't have awareness of like, okay, there's a perceived attack that's coming from the external source, then I'm protecting myself or I'm running away. You know, it's a fight, flight, freeze, fawn, all of these reactions that I may automatically have towards a perceived attack from the outside. So what's happening? What's my default reaction in this case? So this is the awareness piece. It's like, okay, as a designer, as an individual, when I'm receiving this kind of seemingly negative, uh, not worded well feedback, what's going on, and how am I how am I reacting, and, and what am I trying to protect? What's going on here? So this piece I think is pretty fundamental, to actually responding in the moment with something that's actually helpful, because then the practice becomes, once I start to understand a little more about what's triggering me, then I can help start to create a distance between myself and what I'm perceiving as an attack. So I can respond in a way that's not a reaction any longer, but a choice. I can choose what kind of words I wanna use in response to that person so that we can have a certain kind of discussion or conversation down the road. So this, this is, a, a, I guess, um, you know, what's coming to mind for me when it comes to the internal workings of an individual. And at the same time, there's also this other component of, okay, what is a, a way of talking to each other, of communicating between different functions and people in an organization that's actually helpful for our progress progress as an organization? 
this is actually contracting, verbal contracting between people. So oftentimes it could be like, okay, let's have an honest conversation with the PM. How do we give feedback to each other? What kind of language do we want to use? How do we want to focus our feedback on the objective pieces of, of what we're trying to say? You know, this solution, it's not, okay, it's like refraining from saying you did this or that. Rather, it's about describing what is really being talked about in a particular solution or the particular way of, um, of working between, between people. So verbal contracting between people. And also, again, coming back to focus on the objectives. What is really being talked about? So I think this is something that um, could potentially be helpful for folks when it comes to feedback. Okay, what is the... It will be a stupid question, but anyways. Uh, what is the worst piece of feedback you got in your life? The, the worst and maybe the funniest one. Oh, oh I love this one. Uh, <laughs> it was in design school actually okay um this was a third year typography <laughs> which okay. i did not understand back then and only afterwards did i understand the importance of typography and we had a teacher who was um probably shouldn't have been a teacher <laughs> um and he gave me a post-it a, a a feedback on a piece of post-it for my final assignment taped on my assignment without giving it to me in person. I picked it up and I read the post-it. And the post-it said, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. It seems like you have no idea how to come up with any ideas by yourself. You're probably just going to execute someone else's ideas. Uh, that's it. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, man. Yeah, that's... It was not helpful. That, doesn't... <laughs> that is yeah. terrible. Yeah, it was, it was not helpful. Mine was... Uh, the the mind I I think I have two. One is, it was the both was my first boss. Uh, he was just like interesting person. Uh, the first thing he told me that uh, prisoners can do it better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how he knew prisoners who do design in in prison, but yeah, how can you do it? The second one, and he asked me this question multiple times. I hated this question. Okay, do you like it yourself? It is like so passive aggressive question yeah. about design. What do you expect us to say? Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. And then I learned that it's a question to which I have to answer no and then redo without any explanation. Yeah, what is what is have to be done? Uh, but it's a first job. Yeah, first job, what can you expect? Always Ning, What are your I I can't recall any any bad feedback. Um but I think for me, as to my copy, a lot of times, a lot of times the feedback doesn't come in criticizing me, but just proposing endless alternatives that are not any better. And because copy is something that people can contribute to, but may not necessarily be good at, um, I'm forced to sort of come up with a rationale or to go out of my way to explain why I made a certain decision, which is good. But having to do that for every little thing, um, just because someone else presents an alternative when it's not really necessary, can be a bit tiring. So for me, it's it's less critical, but more unnecessary and tiring. So that's how I face most of my feedback. Um, but I do get you, Cassie and Nick. Sometimes a feedback can sound like a terrible error message 
that just tells you, hey, something is wrong with you. Imagine going to the doctor and you say that, okay, I've, you know, stomach ache, or I have a headache. And and doctor tells you, oh, that sucks. Uh, there's something wrong with the head. And then you go back home and it doesn't diagnose you with anything. doesn't tell you any useful information. That's the worst kind of feedback, right? Because that's, you know, it, it really doesn't help. And so... I think even even different, like doctor tells you, okay, you did something with your head. <laughs> Duh. You have so. to deal with it. Cassie, thank you so much for joining us today. You shared a lot of knowledge, a lot of experience. It was it was really great to listen to you and to talk with you. Once again, listen to Cassie's podcast. It is called Being Awareness. Really great. I listened to a few episodes. Just encourage you to go to Apple Podcast and find this one. Cassie, again, thank you for finding time for us and joining us today. Thank you, Cassie. And thank you very much for this opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you never miss a new episode. And share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. That will help us to grow. Stay tuned for more design talks.